The Naval Institute Podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish, ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours. Welcome to the Naval Institute Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings. With me today is retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, the uh, OIC of Naval Institute Debt Norfolk. And uh, Paul making a, an, a, an appearance here in Beach Hall. Always great to see you and uh, getting ready to go out to West next week. Yes, Bill. Good afternoon. How's it going? Excited to get ready there, doing all the prep work, helping uh, helping our conference and outreach folks with the, uh, you know, a, a couple of things, but the enlisted superior performance part of the lunch we'll be doing for both lunches. Yeah. So for our listeners who've never been to a West conference, it's our big annual conference. As, uh, as our CEO, Pete Daly, was mentioning today, it is the Naval Institute and AFSEA bringing content and bringing uh, thought leaders and the actual leaders from the Department of the Navy, Navy Coast Guard, Marine Corps, uh, DOD leaders to San Diego to a fleet concentration area to put on a program to, you know, for those who don't penetrate inside the beltway or or on sea duty or are, you know, on the West Coast who want to know what is you know, Secretary Moldley, what is uh, the Navy's or the Department of Defense's chief acquisitions officer, Ellen Lord? What are, What is the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the CNO, the Commandant of the Coast Guard? What are What's on their minds? And to debate and talk about, in this case, this year, it's are we ready for great power competition? That's that's the topic. So anyway, if you're in the San Diego area, if you are on active duty, you can come to the convention center, come to West. It is free to active duty members. If you're not active duty, but you're a Naval Institute member, there's a huge discount. It is 2 and 3 March, so next Monday, Tuesday at the convention center. It'll be a great event. It kicks off on Monday morning, first thing with the sea service uh, commander's brief, essentially. So it's our uh, chairman, uh, Bob Work, former uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, the chairman of the board of the Naval Institute, talking to uh, CNO Gilday, uh, Commandant Berger, and Commandant Schultz from the Coast Guard. Always a great event. And then we go right into action-packed, uh, you know, conferences, events, panel discussions. We got the convention center floor is sold out to all the big uh, big and small defense companies that are showing their wares. So if you want to see the F-35 cockpit, if you want to see what General Dynamics and HII are building, if you want to talk vendor to vendor, uh, it is a great place to be. So we hope to see you there uh, at West at the Convention Center next Monday and Tuesday. Yeah, I want to footstomp that point too. So um, this is a great opportunity, right? Sometimes these things are viewed probably, you know, many in the enlisted force probably don't recognize with the value of these. Um, so I want to encourage uh, those enlisted naval professionals across the sea services, active duty, retired, naval reserve, um, to come check it out. It'll allow you to connect uh, operator to technology designer. So that's an opportunity to provide some fleet feedback. But also you'll get to hear from your senior naval leaders uh, in a different setting. This isn't like all hands call bringing up you know command type issues. This is hearing about uh, more strategic kind of na- uh, nature of things and your opportunity to ask high level questions. And then also there's a networking component, right? So 
um, for those enlisted naval professionals who may be towards the end of their career. Great opportunity to stop by some of those booths and those vendors and those contractors and others that uh, may be a future employer for you. So I encourage any enlisted naval professional to come on out. And one more thing before we get to our guest today, uh, Paul, you and uh, my deputy, Bill Bray, will be running a uh, essentially a, um, a, a briefing on how to write for proceedings and how to write for the Naval Institute blog on Tuesday afternoon at the convention center. Uh, it is not a writer's workshop, so don't bring uh, in an example of your writing and expect to get line edits. If you're in the San Diego area, if you're coming to West and you've ever wanted to write for proceedings or wanted to know what the process is, Paul and Bill will be able to walk you through the role of our editorial board, how to write for proceedings, how to submit for proceedings, what the different essay contest opportunities that we have. Uh, and this is not, again, this is not just for officers, right? We've got an increasing number of enlisted professionals writing for proceedings, getting published in proceedings, winning essay contests for proceedings. Uh, so we want to hear from all of you. If, you've, if you're interested in writing for proceedings and you've never done it before, or you know somebody who should be writing for us, uh, Get them to the convention center, have them attend that writer's workshop, uh, and we'd love to see them, meet them in person, and uh, talk you through, talk them through that. So, uh, looking forward to that that event as well. Okay, so let's. That's a great segue to our guest today, which is a great example of the fact that we have more and more enlisted professionals writing for proceedings, being published in proceedings. So, on the line from Jacksonville, Florida, Petty Officer First Class Ben Tsart, U.S. Navy. Uh, who wrote an article in the January issue of Proceedings that's titled, The Navy Must Better Use Its Reserve. Petty Officer T-Cert, uh, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. Master Chief, thank you for your time also. And our other guest is the Force Master Chief for the Naval Reserve, Master Chief Chris Coates, uh, who's calling to us from uh, Washington, D.C. His office is in the Pentagon, right next to uh, McPon, as uh, Paul, you just mentioned to me. Uh, so we kind of have one of these... Uh, point counterpoint conversations. You know, we've got a petty officer who's who's talking about some problems with the Navy Reserve or the the fact that the Navy underutilizes its reserve force, uh, and then we've got the uh, Master Chief in charge of the that force, the Naval Reserve Force, uh, being able to weigh in and give his priorities and also his perspective on the problems and what we're what's being done about it. So, uh, Master Chief Cotts, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much, Bill. Uh, hey, just uh, as a quick administrative note, I, I absolutely appreciate being on this call. And uh, for Pastor Tsort, uh, thank you as well for your contribution proceedings. I do have to forward any of my comments uh, because of the nature of my job as, uh, that that uh, any of my comments may not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Navy, Department of Defense, or U.S. government. Uh, but I am I am uh, free and happy to uh, operate any opinions. Uh, and uh, and contributions uh, for Pedestrian Tsort and his uh, his uh, contribution to the proceedings. All right, Petty Officer Tsor, let's get to it. So uh, you did an intro, you know, great body of the of the article here. So I'll start out with you say there are many issues, however, that plague Navy Reserve forces, such as training, usability, and stigmas perpetuated by the active component. When all these concerns are brought to the surface, we are left with one of the biggest deficiencies, an unwillingness to step up, to volunteer for mobilizations, and being ready to execute the mission. So tell us what prompted your article, and, uh, you know, here's your point. Uh, let's hear what you, uh, what you want to add to that piece. Uh, it was something that I didn't even realize was a problem until I'd actually went into the reserves myself. Uh, you know, when I was active, I was part of the people that were just like, hey, oh, you're a reservist? All right, see you for a couple hours, time to go. 
But when we got them for two weeks, it was like, okay, cool. Now we got a usable body. So we'd go and use them like then. But then when I went reserves, I started to see that, you know, on drill weekends, it seemed like, man, it was kind of a, kind of a waste of time, especially if someone had like a really good job on the outside, but they enjoyed serving. It almost seemed counterproductive to what they were doing. You'd get there and it would be PowerPoints, lack of training. Uh, when you'd meet people, they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, reserves, got you. And then when I got mobilized, that's when I started to encourage other sailors. I was like, hey, go to this website. You can apply for a mob. You can do this. You can do that. And they're just like, well, I'm not really, not really trained for that. I don't know if it's something I want to do. Sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm really contributing around here. But once I went RC to AC, I was at Knott's Norfolk, and we started out with like 12 people, and then we watched it balloon all the way up to 83 people. And you started hearing the same stories coming through for them. But then we started realizing some of these guys were going to different rates, coming back active duty, just wanted to be back active duty. So we started sending them to schools. And then at the NOS, there wasn't much to do. So we're like, all right, cool, let's get you ready for active duty. We started doing musters, and when we did musters, we'd start empowering these kids to start leading, leading their peers, leading people even a little more senior to them, and have them doing sweepers to the point that we had them doing volunteer events, and we had them doing stuff at the facilities to repair it. And you just started to see the more you trained and you empowered and you gave them a purpose, how willing all these people that were either traditional reservists or active, then reservists, how much you were getting out of them and how much they were willing to do. And it's like, you know, if we can see it on this small scale and you listen to these stories from everybody that was a reservist, it's like, man, if you really project this out into a larger scale into everything that we do in the Navy, it, it just seems like you would get a lot of benefit out of using these guys that are hungry, that bring in that perspective from the outside of what it's like out there and do how, I don't know if you consider it better or just more purposeful what it is we do when you give them a purpose and you give them training and you make them feel like a part of the mission. Hey, Ben, uh, back us up for a second. Uh, what did you do when you were in the active component before you became a reservist? What, what's your rating? Uh, and then uh, what, what were commands were you in? And then what command did you immediately transfer into in the reserve component? Oh, okay. So I started out at uh, HM15 as an aviation machinist mate working on 53s for five years, and then I transitioned over to the Super Hornets at VFA 106, and then when I went reserves, uh, they actually sent me right back to HM15. So, Force Coats, uh, you read this article. Uh, what were your thoughts? Where, where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Well, I thought, you know, I absolutely um, value uh, every sailor's uh, viewpoint on the Navy Reserve, uh, without a doubt, uh, you know, the Navy Reserve is vast, uh, you know, you have a, and it's layered, uh, you know, uh, the, the most immediate layer that you, uh, you encounter in the Navy Reserve is a selected reserve, which is a drilling reservist, um, which often uh, I have to talk with sailors uh, to help understand the strategic aspects of the Navy Reserve is, uh, and I like to coin the reserve as a reinforcement. Um, it is, uh, it is primarily composed of fleet sailors who come off of active duty and into the reserve and they possess, uh, you know, uh, either exquisite skills or skills uh, that the Navy will need in the time of war. But the whole purpose of the reserve is to store those skills, those individuals and capabilities uh, because uh, the, they can become quite costly on active duty. The Navy, the Navy reserve and the Navy have gone through drawdowns 
uh, because it's uh, as well as other services uh, because of uh, it's expensive uh, and to put it into the reserve force is less expensive. Uh, so uh, that creates a uh, that can create a a culture of uh, and I don't see this as much today as I have in my career, but a culture in which uh, it's the reserve force may not be as valuable because it's not a full time force. And uh, really, the the whole purpose of the of the reserve is to be there in a time of war. Uh, and because of our current footing, uh, be it post nine eleven and you know a very contested environment, uh, the need for the reserve is become more operational and less strategic. Uh, and so that means consumption of the reserve or utilization of the reserve becomes uh, a focal point. And then. Uh, I'll just cap it all off is that where the Navy has needed us in the past 19 to 20 years is to serve as individual augmentees uh, forward, either supporting the Department of Defense or a joint uh, joint mission. So the utilization of the reserve force has been more in the individual and less in uh, less in the um, augmentation units. Uh, but we still have a, a responsibility to maintain commission units, uh, such as the unit that uh, Pedestrian T sort is in that commission unit is a reserve unit and, uh, and it is a, it has a gift map requirement. So it has a, a state of readiness it must maintain. Uh, so it needs a, a greater unit integrity. So, uh, that's a broad picture, uh, but to the specifics, uh, and, and where the culture stems from is, um, you know, pre 9-11 or right about 9-11, the Navy went through initiative of active reserve integration. Um, where the design was to layer the reserve force into active duty uh, with a, a degree of full-time support uh, uh, sailors in there to help bridge the gap. And uh, we never fully actualized that act- active reserve integration uh, because of the IA mission. So I understand the perspective. I, I, I don't entirely uh, disagree uh, with Pastor T. Sword. I think it's a very important, uh, a very important perspective. But uh, I would offer, you know, uh, from my vantage point, where we where we could do better is the the offboarding or off ramping from the uh, from the active to the reserve. We don't really have a a glide slope that goes into the reserve uh, to my uh, to my liking, and so there is an educational barrier or uh, an awareness barrier that happens with uh, from an active component of utilizing reserve to a reserve component being utilized. So that probably enhances uh, Pedestrian T-Sort's uh, uh, perspective on that. All right. So, Ben, you identify basically three kind of broad areas where you think uh, there could be improvements. Training, usability, I would call it probably util- utilization of reserve force sailors, and then stigmas. So um, with all problems that we propose, what are your proposed solutions to each one of those issues that you highlight? Well, the stigmas and the the utility of it, I think, are kind of both go hand in hand. And that's kind of what I was talking about in the article about doing away with drill weekends and going to a quarterly thing and then attaching a week to two of their quarters to suffice to two weeks. Um, you know, it's just proven the more people see you, the more you get, uh, I wouldn't say facial recognition, but they get to know you more. They feel like they can use you better. You know what I mean? You get more time to work on significant qualls or just learning the mission in general. You know, I think when you start doing that, you're going to you're going to start breaking down the barriers that comes with the stigma and the usability. 
and then the training also. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to just the time that you can put in and how you can, well, how I believe you could better maximize the time. Because on the weekends, it's tough to say, all right, I'm going to see you for these two days. We're going to try to get your training in, plus your GMTs, plus all this paperwork. But we need you to be ready to go just in case. That's just my opinion because I look, I understand jobs and all that. And everything's supposed to be part-time, but three weekends, a quarter, that's six days, six straight days. That's just where I believe I think would help start tearing down the barriers as far as stigma and training and utility. Hey, I, I just like to offer uh, not necessarily a counterpoint, but uh, something that is very important that we uh, that we have an obligation for our reserve is, uh, uh, as I said earlier, this is a surge force. So uh, you know, sometimes we call it break glass in case of war, um, but because we have become so you know, through drawdown, we have become so dependent upon additional support that it does create those those uh, those needs for more sailors to be on deck to handle more mission. Uh, and so that, that's a difficult uh, uh, paradigm to shift through. But the Navy does, uh, and so does the Department of Defense, they have an obligation to employers uh, to to not overutilize the reserve force because this is, you know, it's, uh, obviously, it's a part of our societal makeup that these are, this is the workforce. Uh, and so there are certain laws on the books uh, to protect the overutilization of the reserve force uh, uh, as it would turn to an active or a fully committed operational force. So the, 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 the juxtaposition that uh, Pedestrian Tissort uh, highlights there is, uh, and, and I agree, you know, more faith, more face time on the more turning wrenches equals more trust. More trust equals more readiness, and more readiness equals more capability. That's the way I kind of sum it up. Uh, so I agree with him in the point that we could restructure drill weekends or provide a, a additional methodology or, or different methodology to, to do drill weekends. But it does have to square with the reserve component uh, mission to preserve workforce, uh, civilian workforce, and, and then uh, – uh, as well as the law, Title X on, uh, law, what Congress expects out of its reserve force. Question I was going to ask is uh, for Ben, for Petty Officer T-Cert. Um, so you're you're an aviation uh, petty officer, aviation maintenance guy, uh, and so in the active component, you fixed airplanes. You said uh, uh, H-53s and and Super Hornets. Uh, in the reserve component, is that what you do as well? Are you fixing airplanes on your weekend reserve drills? Uh, yes, sir. When we, when we have plans, obviously we, uh, our mission's always fluctuating. So always having planes there is not possible. But yes, every time we have a drill weekend, we try to have some maintenance to do to, to help the reservists and the mission out. Obviously, that's not always possible. And of course, there's usually classroom trainings when we can, but we've, we've done a pretty good job here at 58 of trying to mitigate that classroom time. But again, having a plane is not always in our control. Gotcha. And, and you mentioned that, uh, you know, every quarter there's six essentially drill weekend days. So you do two days a, a weekend or two days a, a month as a weekend. If you combine those together, you'd have six days in a row, which is a nice full week of work. And you can be alongside the, the active component. Is that something is the ability to reschedule drill weekends so that you can combine them into a chunk of time like a week or six days? Is that something that your command or that other commands are trying to do to make better use of the reserves? Uh, yes. Well, what we're trying to do is it, 
ultimately falls on the sailor. What are they doing on the drill weekends? They're there because everybody has that choice. You can, you can sit here or you can get out there and you can be as proactive as you can. Obviously some things are out of their control, but yeah, if a sailor's coming in and they're active, they want to learn, they're pushing through on the quals. Absolutely. We have no problem as long as the funding's there and we can work it on trying to get them scheduled where we can see them for larger blocks of time. Force codes. So I think a lot of this comes down, you know, on the active duty side. I think in general, there's just a lack of awareness of what the reserve force does, how it's organized, all the different components. Um, what are some of the, you know, common misconceptions or knowledge gaps that you see with the active duty force that uh, you would want to help educate through this forum now? Yeah, that's uh, thanks, Paul. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. It, you know, um, so uh, I've actually had part of my background is I was I served with the Marine Corps as well, uh, Marine Corps Reserve, uh, which, um, you know, as we know about our Marine Corps, uh, Marine is a Marine, regardless if they are a reserve or active duty. And so they really adopt a total force approach to their reserve force. Um, and so not to belabor the Marine Corps side of it, but what I have tried to work through our, our Navy is a a, a, an understanding of a total force construct to go fight and win wars. And uh, when I sit with active duty leaders, uh, both in, in large forums and in small, um, I, I discuss the value of retaining sailors in, uh, in those, even those who are transitioning out of the Navy, retaining them into the reserve uh, because their skill sets may be needed in a time of war. And one you know, huge benefit of our most current national defense strategy is the, the, the desire and the design to go back to strategic depth. And uh, for the reserve force, and uh, CNO himself has, has, uh, has addressed this through the Frago, is what is the uh, accessible force if we had to go to war? The augmentations, the, the unit constructs, and is it properly aligned to, to the combatant commander's needs? Uh, and so uh, a couple of initiatives have launched from the Navy Reserve Office, uh, one notably being the Reserve Capability Review, which serves to, uh, to educate and inform the combatant commanders as well as to review what their current needs are versus what, what, their, current, you know, what their current reserve profile is and what their current needs are and make sure they're properly aligned. And that uh, that education process um, for the combatant commander uh, to to see that they may not be aligned is very valuable, and then to allow us to align them uh, to provide additional capability. So, you know, for instance, uh, to give some examples of that, it would be um, counter UAS uh, or uh, expeditionary logistics, uh, special operations forces. You know, there is. There are these skills, uh, and, and up to and including what uh, Pedersen Tisord is talking about, uh, fleet logistics, uh, aviation fleet logistics, which is a reserve unique capability. The active component does not fly C-130s to move parts and people around. Uh, that is a reserve force mission. Uh, so ensuring that our, our Navy leaders, uh, and I work very diligently uh, and closely with uh, Fleet Master Chief Koshoffer from N1, as well as Fleet O'Raw and Fleet Honia, to, uh, to really recognize what the reserve bring to the table, uh, both in operational, which is what, what the day on, stay on teams love. They love to see the day, you know, the state sailors coming from the reserve force to support them. But more importantly, how to make sure they preserve their strategic depth so when they need it. 
they have they can reinforce rapidly within 30 days. You know, uh, if you have a unit of 200 that can expand to 400 within 30 days, that is a very strategic and necessary posture for our Navy when it when we're talking about deterrence and sea control. Uh, so uh, providing that, that layer and making sure that it's uh, clear uh, and and this is the piece that um, and I'll rest right here as soon as I uh, this point is having an integrated pay and personnel system which facilitates the quick transfer back and forth of active reserve or drill or through the spectrum of how sailors support because it is multifaceted uh, is is something that we're really uh, both both uh, our offices and the chief and navy personnel are really going after so that uh, that pay system doesn't slow us down. So uh, the the stigma sometimes is created by that pay system because uh, it could be perceived as too hard to get or too difficult to administrate. Uh, so working towards an integrated pay and personnel system, much like the other services have can reduce that stigma so that sailors can move fluidly, quickly uh, to where they're needed to support and then move back and transition back to their civilian jobs uh, quickly as well. So uh, total force, uh, understanding what the entire force brings to bear for the Navy's mission uh, has been well received by the fleets and the forces. Uh, and, I, and I'm very proud of their their um, their effort to really take a look at what they have on the bench to make sure that they're they're trained and ready uh, there's still ways to go. There are always be ways to go, uh, but uh, but a firm believer that uh, that all of our current senior enlisted are, have embraced a total force mentality. So that's a good perspective from the strategic level. So Ben, from the more deck plate level, you know what are the things you hear that underlie this? What what are these misplaced beliefs uh, from the fleet, from your peers that you would you know what are your top one or two that you would want the fleet to know uh, that they may be misconceiving about the reserve force? Look, they just want to get out there and get in the fight just like everybody else. And when you bring them in as part of the team and you show them that they're valuable, sometimes they may end up being your best people out there. You know what I mean? Just a little, I would say appreciation might be the best, but at the end of the day, it's everyone just wanting to be a part of the team. And they need to really think about that when the reservists come through, like, hey, this guy's taking time out of his job to serve and he wants to be a part of the team, he or she. So... I would say that's probably that you know that's probably the big exclamation point I would put on there. I wouldn't even think that there would be like a number two. I think once you integrate that, all the other things should start to fall in place. I want to editorialize for a second because I, I completely agree, Fleet Coats, what you said about the re, the active component needing to understand what the reserves can do for them, and and coming up with a good plan to utilize that asset, the reserve force. Uh, when I was on active duty, I was a naval intelligence officer. There were periods and in different commands where we had reserve units attached to us so that supported us. And when a, when the active component didn't spend time training and explaining to the, uh, to the reserve component what we needed them to do and then having a conversation about what they could do on a weekend or in a full uh, two-week active duty component time, um, we, we got very little out of the reservists, right? And there was sort of this, this stigma about the reserves. Well, that's just the reserves. They just come in on the weekends and they read the newspaper and they go home on Sunday, right? Um, but in, when I was in commands where the, um, where there was a great integration, where there was an effort to make sure that the reservists had training, where they had access to the information that they needed, where they spent some time side by side with their active duty, uh, you know, uh, 
swim buddy, if you will, uh, then you could you got a lot out of the reservists, right? And the reservists were happy to be part of the organization. So the greatest example I had was we had a, when I was in in uh, PACOM, uh, we had a reserve unit in Colorado, and you think, okay, Denver, that's a long way away. We never see those people. But what we did was we invested several million dollars in connectivity, in the systems, in the intelligence systems, in the uh, sensitive compartmented information facility that they needed to be able to do their job. We took them out to uh, PACOM, sat them down side by side with imagery interpreters that were active component, and then we allowed them to go back to Denver and they could completely access all the same information that we were accessing in Hawaii. And so when they came in on the weekend or if they came in for an, a, an extended period of uh, two weeks of active duty, they could do the same work there that we were doing in Hawaii and they were incredibly productive. So I'll, I'll end my, um, my editorial comment here, but the, the point is well taken that it's, it's incumbent on the active duty to make the most use out of the reserve component and not the other way around. It's hard for the reserve component to raise their hand, and say, you know, put me in coach all the time, but the active component has got to say, what can you do? What are your skills? What training do you need? How can I help you help me? Right. That's very, very important. Uh, I wanted to ask a question to fleet coats. How big is the Navy reserve component? How, how many people are we talking about and what's the total number of man days that they provide to the Navy on an annual basis. Hey, uh, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, just for uh, uh, administrative correction. So I am a force mass chief, not a fleet mass chief, but I appreciate the promotion. Happy to take it. The, uh, the Navy reserve as a total. So uh, we look at the, we look at the term called ready reserve, which, uh, which comprises of really three categories, uh, full-time support. Uh, that's, uh, that's exactly what Pedestrian T-Sword is right now. He's one of 10,000 147 full-time support sailors. They are responsible for bridging the gap, both training administrative of reserve, uh, the former term called TAR. You got about 47,861 cell res, uh, and at any given time of those cell res, about 3,000 of them are mobilized uh, for the global war on terrorism. And so uh, I'd just like to pin that number real quick because we've been doing 3,000 moves to support the joint fight for about 19 years now. Uh, that's on the average, but uh, currently we're at 3,000 a year, uh, and uh, and we definitely need to tamper that down. Uh, CNO has put up a couple of initiatives uh, based on our based on our analysis of maybe uh, slimming down the IA numbers a little bit so that we can get back to maritime security and maritime superiority. Uh, and then you have uh, the IRR, which is Individual Ready Reserve. So every sailor that comes into the Navy, officer enlisted, has a required eight-year military service obligation. Uh, they typically do four or five of that in the active duty, and then they do the remainder of that portion in the IRR. So that comprises your Ready Reserve Reserve Force. Uh, the Chief of Navy Reserve uh we spend most of our time administrating the full-time support and selected reserve, uh, and we are beginning to really become under, going back to the strategic depth uh, comment earlier, to really begin to manage our ready reserve force so, uh, so that if we get into a uh, conflict, we, have, we know where and, when all, where and how all of those IRR individuals could mobilize through a, uh, through a expedited or uh, or at least a method uh, a deliberate mobilization plan so the ready reserves uh, as compared to the other services uh, we are towards the lighter end of the ready reserve uh, 
clearly the Army would have more, Marine Corps would have less. Uh, actually, the Marine Corps has a total rate of reserve of about 100,000 as well. Uh, but then you have your National Guards. And so I sit as a member of the, what we call the seven seals of all of this, the reserve components. Uh, and the Navy Reserve uh, clearly focused on maritime superiority uh, and uh, trying to trying to work our way out of the global war on terror and more in line with the great power competition. So we're looking to organize units, uh, reorganize and reconstitute units that the active component needs, uh, specifically basing units, uh, capability-based uh, units, uh, so that uh, like much like you illustrated. Uh, the unit provides an effect in less the individual. Uh, and to uh, Professor Tussort's, uh comment of making sure the unit uh, provides a capability for which the active component, whether that be augment or commission, which the active component needs to complete their mission. And uh, uh, again, I, I was really happy to hear your, your editorial comments about the, uh, the what what a what trained reservists can bring to the fight because we do have that in spades across our Navy reserves. Uh, there is a large demand for our forces, a uh, tremendous demand for our forces and, and almost every domain and enterprise, uh, we can't keep up with it. So uh, we'd love to grow the Navy reserve, uh, but uh, that's up to Congress. Uh, but, uh, but retaining all of that talent is one of our key focuses and the recruiting command has done great work in the past uh, couple of years of, ensuring that the prior service that uh, come off of active duty have access and understand what their reserve is all about. So I, I believe we are the, we are trending in the tremendous positive of, uh, of keeping our reserve uh, bench strong, trained, and capable. Hey, Force. So Petty Ostertitzor represents, uh, obviously, aviation community. What's there's a lot of pressure in the surface fleet with uh, manning shortfalls. Um, you know that's been well written about and documented and discussed. Is the reserve force a part of that kind of solution? Or do we have sailors in the reserve force that are helping fill gap billets at sea? Uh, and if so, how do you generate a demand signal to the reserve force to do that? Uh, not to my satisfaction. I won't. I won't lie, and I haven't been pretty secretive about that. Uh, I would love to see our reserve sailors more on USS Gray Halls. Uh, I am a surface warrior by trade, uh, and I grew up on Navy Reserve frigates, uh, so I understand uh, what a reserve unit can bring to a ship. But uh, I would prefer to move our augmentation out of the GWAT and uh, start to do definite recalls and recalls to USS ships. Um, it is it is a little bit complex uh, to ensure demand signal links up with the availability of the individual, uh, but uh, it's my belief that uh, that if you if you start the process, it will start to pay out. To that effort, um, I have placed two command master chiefs with both force master chiefs of uh, Surf Land and Surf Pack. Uh, so I have a I have a command master chief who works on works closely with them to assess where there is opportunity uh, and then start to bridge that gap. So that's more of a grassroots level. Uh, but we do have areas which there already is blossoming uh, relationships and, and capability, and that's in the LCS squadrons, both east and west. Um, a lot of ability there to do maintenance. Uh, it's not the on the crew going out to sea, uh, but it's more of the ma expeditionary maintenance, uh, force protection, 
the things that the 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 uh, capabilities that they're that would they would need augmentations for those are uh those are there and then uh, more into the shipyards which is not to see but definitely part of uh part of uh, surface readiness uh we have about 1800 sailors with the surge main which uh represent sailors that support the uh that support the uh shipyards and then i just left submarine reserve force they also have uh, a full portfolio of skills, uh, everything from expeditionary maintenance, force protection, uh, and undersea rescue. So to, to the access, uh, the ability to, to do those things is there. Um, now, we could not fill every gap at sea. Uh, we, I wish we could. Uh, it, it revolves around, you know, the, the, this is the reserve force, so they have full-time jobs that, uh, that they're you know, well compensated. A lot of our students and come back into the reserves or try to come back on active duty, uh, which is we definitely support that as well. Uh, but uh, I would love to see more definite recall, less definite recalls out of the IAs uh, for GWAT and more more recalls and mobilization opportunities on USS ships. Uh, haven't cracked that nut in whole yet, but uh, I do have a lot of support from uh, from the fleets on 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 working that. But uh, really, it stems down to getting the IA mission. Uh, a lesson to a certain degree, so we have more access and availability. Okay. Uh, so, Ben, what's the feedback been to your article? Good, bad, indifferent? Uh, have you heard a lot? What are your peers saying? And then what words would you uh, give to any kind of potential authors out there, enlisted naval professionals, on your experience of writing and what they should, uh, what they should think about? I got pretty good feedback from it because, like I said, we have reservists at our squadron and people have been in the reserves a long time, some of them prior active. So the feedback's been pretty good so far from what, I mean, maybe they're lying to me, I don't know, but it seems good. But um, as far as writing, like my level of writing was, I've never written anything before, you know, not unless I was mandated to. So this was kind of like my first first opportunity at writing. And what I'd tell you in the future, if you feel strongly about something and think it's going to make a difference, just start typing and see what comes out from it. Pass it around to people before you submit it. And, um, you know, get some feedback. Sometimes those people have better points or more points to throw in to help your case out or help your writing. But first step is if you feel strongly about something, just just jump out there and say it. That's a great way to say it. Well, gentlemen, I'm sorry we're out of time, but I wanted to thank uh, Petty Officer Ben Tesort, who wrote in the January issue of Proceedings, the Navy must better use its reserve. So, uh, Ben, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Force Master Chief, Chris Coates from the U.S. Naval Reserve. Master Chief, it's uh, been great to talk to you today and get the, the strategic perspective on what the Naval Reserve is, how big it is, and the the aspect of, uh, as you mentioned, trying to get back from the uh, inter- individual augmentations, the GWAT uh, support mission, and back to Naval Reserve supporting the fleet. Hey, uh, thank you very much. I, I would like to commend uh, Pedestrian Tesort myself. I-, I believe I agree with him. That's part of the courage component of our sailors is getting your perspective out there so that it can be understood and digested and then reflected upon. And I think uh, it's tremendously valuable to have our sailors writing uh, in any forum, uh, as long as it's unclassified, uh, in any forum so that we can increase a lot of thought leadership in this space. So thanks a lot, Pedestrian Tesort. That's what uh, Proceedings was established in 1873 to do. It's, it's to be the open forum for professional discussion of topics of interest uh, to the sea services and uh, strategic interest to the sea services. So thank you both for being part of it, for writing Pedestrian T-Cert, and for, uh, for joining us on the podcast today. 
Next week, we'll be at West, as we mentioned earlier. And until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. The Naval Institute podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish, ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours.